Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Today is Palm Sunday, like Amber mentioned. Uh, the, uh, we're entering into Holy Week, uh, the week that leads up to Easter. And I wanted to start today with a question. Why do you come to church? I'm not looking for the Sunday school answer where, you know, you tell the teacher what he wants to hear, okay? But what's the real reason? Maybe it's out of habit. You were just brought up that way. Your parents said you were supposed to go to church and you never really questioned it. Maybe you feel guilty if you didn't go. Maybe it's because you get to see some friends that you love. Maybe it's a way to recharge your spiritual batteries once a week. Believe it or not, some people go to church for business reasons. Because they think they'll be able to meet people who will be useful for their career advancement. Do we want to encourage that one? Probably not. The reason why some, pe- some single people go to church is to meet other single people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And the church would be a great place to meet your soulmates. Maybe there's somebody in your row that you'd like to meet today. So here's a tip. Don't do anything creepy, okay? Just listen to the message, and after the service is over, maybe you can meet that person. That could be good. Sometimes people blow off church for a really long time. And then they have kids, and they realize that they need help. But I think at some level, at least some of the time, there's something else going on. I think we're hoping to feel the presence of God. I think we're hoping that a moment will come. Maybe it'll happen during a song, or while somebody is praying, or while the message is going on. Or maybe while you're just sitting there, and something will happen. And a lot of us have experienced this. You know, you come in, you're feeling a little stagnant, and a moment came, and you feel yourself inspired. Or you come in feeling lonely, and in a moment, this thought came to you. You are not alone. Or you feel useless, and this thought came to you. God is not done with you. Sometimes that moment can be painful. This practice, or this relationship, or this attitude, or this habit has got to stop. And it's kind of painful, but it's also a good thing. Sometimes you, feel in, sometimes you come in feeling guilty. And when you sense God's presence, you become okay. You know, God is saying, I am with you. My grace is sufficient for you. You are forgiven. You are loved. Now, you might think I would say, that's a good reason to come to church. But actually, I'm not. As it turns out, there's kind of a problem with that idea that we're going to look at. It turns out there's something more helpful to pursue than feeling close to God. And there's a better way of pursuing it than simply going to church. We're on this journey through the book of Mark to develop an intimate relationship with Jesus and to be known by God. Today we're going to take a look at God's house number one in Jerusalem within the walls of that city where the gold dome is. I've got an image up here on the screen for us to take a look at. This was the great temple of Herod in Jesus' day. And I want to tell you a little bit about why people went to temple in Jesus' day and about the last time Jesus went to temple. And maybe, while we're talking today, you will encounter the living God. Now to begin, you've got to understand the ancient world had all kinds of temples. But temples played a very different role than churches do in our day. We think of churches as places where people go to worship. But in the ancient world, 
People thought of the temple as a place where the God lived. People would come to worship him because that God lived there. A temple was to its God for folks in the ancient world. Almost exactly what a palace would be to a king. The place where the God dwelled. So people would go to a temple to offer sacrifices in order to make a request of the God who actually resided in that temple. And that's why every nation, every people had all kinds of temples. Because every nation had a lot of gods. The more gods, the better. The more temples, the better. Except for one nation. Do you know how many temples Israel had? One. And there's a reason behind that. It was a theological statement, a spiritual statement. One God, one temple. And because that God is perfect, that temple had to be perfect. That's why the holiest place in that temple was 20 cubits high by 20 cubits wide by 20 cubits long. It was a perfect space. It was covered in gold and it was filled with the fragrance of incense. And the priest would wear a vestment with precious onyx gems. And this is all echoing something in the book of Genesis when it talks about creation. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. You see, the temple was intended to be what the garden of Eden originally was. The place where God would dwell on earth with people. Temple in, the, in Israel was understood to be the one place on the planet where heaven and earth intersect. Where these two spheres come together. The reason why the human race lost Eden. The barrier that keeps us from feeling close to God all the time is sin. It's the great problem according to Israel. It's our guilt. We do wrong. We don't feel holy. So for Israel, the temple became the place where the forgiveness of sins gets expressed. And that's why at least once every three years, every single male in Israel was commanded to go to temple. They would go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for their forgiveness. Temple is where up there came down here. Now Jesus obviously thought about the temple a lot. When he was born, his parents brought him to the temple in Jerusalem to present him to God. His parents offered a dove sacrifice. Because if you were poor and you couldn't afford a sheep that at least allowed you to participate, that's what you did. And then they took Jesus back to the temple again when he was 12. And Jesus was so enamored with the temple that he couldn't leave. He's 12 years old. And his parents head back home, but somewhere along the way, they realized that they left them behind. You can imagine parents in our day going into hysterics. Any of you ever momentarily lost your kid somewhere? I have. It's frightening. Well, Jesus' parents run back to the temple and they find him. And they try to scold him. But how do you scold Jesus? I mean, were they like, hey, Jesus, what in the heck are you doing? And Jesus is like, you talking to me? You talking to me? I'm just joking. Jesus never said that. <laughs> Actually, Jesus said, didn't you know? I had to be in my father's house. I had to be with my father. I'm going to pause here to say that sometimes you really look forward to going to a place 
and then the actual experience of it is kind of a letdown. If I were to say the happiest place on earth, where would you think of? It would be Disney World, right? The Magic Kingdom? Years ago, we had season passes to Disney when the kids were young. And since we only lived an hour away, we could pop over pretty regularly. Disney offers some fantastic people watching, rivaled only by the airport and maybe the state fair. I notice people's faces and I think, this sure doesn't seem like the happiest place on earth. You know, kids are crying, parents are yelling, and people have this look on their face like they're on a mission. It's like, we've got to get the Thunder Mountain before the lines get too long. One of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, talked a little bit about his experience at Disney. And since we're on the subject, I thought we'd check out a video. So let's take a look at the screen. Last summer, we did our first big family vacation. Well, I should clarify, we went to Disney. Now, if you haven't been to Disney as an adult, just imagine you're standing in line at the DMV. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) Actually, it was Orlando in July, so it was kind of like standing in line on the surface of the sun. (laughs) Why would we do this to ourselves? (laughs) Remember when you were a kid and you'd go on vacation, you'd be like, why is dad always in a bad mood? Now I understand. (laughs) How can I spend an enormous amount of money, be uncomfortable, and listen to my children complain and whine? Disney. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Because, you know, there's pressure to have fun on your vacation, right? But at Disney, it's like a desperation. You see it on the faces of parents, like, This was an enormous mistake. I hope you're having fun. It was either this or send you to college. I stood in line for an hour and 15 minutes for the Dumbo ride. After a minute, I was like, I'm the Dumbo. I'm waiting to see myself. At the end of the line, there's just gonna be a mirror and some guy going, Dumbo. The only truly happy people at Disney are the people taking money from people like us. Well, there was actually a similar kind of contradiction in Israel about the temple. And it's important to understand this in order to get what was happening in Jesus' day. One problem was the Romans, these enemy occupiers, had actually taken over the temple. They actually kept the priest's vestments stored so that the only guys who could serve as priests had to be in cahoots with the Romans. So, of course, most Israelites did not like that. Worse, it had become really big business. One quarter of Jerusalem's population had jobs through the temple. During one Passover alone, this is going to blow your mind, during one Passover alone, we're told that over 266,000 sheep were offered as a sacrifice. And, of course, they had to all get purchased. So somebody's making money off this. The guys running the temple made up a rule that doves offered as sacrifices had to be certified as flawless. Now, what that meant was if you were poor and you brought your own dove because you love God and you want to offer something to him, they wouldn't certify it. So you had to buy one of their doves. 
They literally had a dove monopoly, and they used that to exploit the poor. They would leverage the devotion of the poor to oppress them. To pay the temple tax, you had to exchange Roman currency, which is what most folks used in that day, into Hebrew shekels. And guess who got to set the exchange rate and make a huge profit? So see, in Jesus' day, for the most part, the temple was not the happiest place on earth. Almost everyone wanted to reform the temple. Almost everybody was upset with the temple. There's one group called the Zealots, and they were these very nationalist patriot guys. And they wanted to start an armed revolt to overthrow the Romans by violence. In fact, the Romans actually built their fortress immediately above the temple, accessed only by one stairway, so that if there were any riots, and there were a lot of riots, they could push the enemy down by force. The temple was a real dangerous place. There's another group called the Pharisees, and they basically wanted to turn their homes into temples. They had given up on that temple, so they applied all the temple ritual laws about flawlessness and perfection and purity to their own family and their own guests and their own meals. No flawless people, no blemished people in their home. And then there's a group of people called the Qumran community, and they believed the temple was so corrupt, they forbade anybody from going. So there's all this tension, all these conflicting ideas that are surrounding the temple. And there's the Sadducees who cooperate with the Romans, and they actually serve in the temple, but they're kind of viewed as corrupt. And then here's Jesus with all these different kinds of groups, and he doesn't align with any of them. And he says the strangest things. Now, this will become indispensable to understanding who he is in understanding how you and I grow close to God. His message was, the kingdom of God has come near. Only, it didn't happen where everybody expected it. It didn't happen in Jerusalem because the temple was there. It happened wherever Jesus was, because Jesus was there. So in Mark 2, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, some guys dig a hole through a roof, And lower their paralyzed friend down to Jesus. And what Jesus says to the paralyzed man is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this paralyzed man didn't even ask for that. He just wanted to be healed. Jesus did that too. But he added the forgiveness part as kind of a bonus. Jesus got in a lot of trouble for that. Because Israel knew that everybody has a place to go for the forgiveness of sins. And that was the temple where you had to pay money to sacrifice sheep or doves. Jesus is making an audacious claim. That little slice where heaven and earth overlap, where God is present, where sins are forgiven, where humanity is restored, where up there comes down here, that little slice where the temple had always pointed to perfectly, is now happening in reality, in Jesus. You see, Jesus is saying, this is the end of the temple as you've known it, the old temple. This is the beginning of the new temple, of the temple as God wants it to be. This is the fulfillment, the dream that the temple has always been about. God's dream of dwelling with human beings is back in business and alive and well on earth, and it is coming through me. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's going to get in real big trouble financially, 
spiritually, ethnically, politically, in every other way. And this is connected to a story that you probably know about. It would later become known as Palm Sunday, which is what we're observing today. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he's going on a road down to the Mount of Olives. And the crowds place palm branches before him. And they lay their cloaks on the ground before him. It's their way of throwing a ticker tape parade and rolling out the red carpet. And it was very dramatic. This is the first thing Jesus did when they're all saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the first thing Jesus does. He enters the temple courts and he drove out all that were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is getting in real serious trouble here. Picture this in your mind. This is not Sunday school Jesus. This is not meek and mild Jesus. This isn't, you know, little children come to me Jesus or tending the flock kind of a Jesus. To give you a visual of the temple, the outer courts were the size of 20 football fields. It was huge. In other words, most people in the courts would have no idea what's going on when Jesus is turning over the tables. He quotes from two passages in the Old Testament. They would all get this. They would all understand what he was saying. The first is from Isaiah 56 that says that God wanted his house to be a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the zealots aren't going to like that. The Gentiles? The Romans? Really? Salvation coming to everyone? And then the second passage is from the prophet Jeremiah. And it's a judgment for people who turn religion into a prophet, to a way of making money. Jesus sees people selling doves, and he thinks of the poor. He thinks of his mom and dad when he was a baby. And it's worth noting that no one is more enraged, more incensed about religion gone wrong than Jesus is. It's an incredibly important story. And sometimes it's referred to as the cleansing of the temple. But Jesus wasn't cleansing the temple. He was not saying, I'm going to make the temple better by getting rid of the people who are making money off it. What Jesus was saying is, the old temple is done. The new temple has come. But here's what's amazing about Jesus, the new temple. He goes to the Mount of Olives to pray that he could get spared. That he could not be executed. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he gets a no. God says no to Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross in his moment of greatest obedience. And instead of feeling deeply God's presence, he feels deeply the opposite. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, with Jesus, the moment he was used most powerfully by God was the moment he felt farthest from God. The most important prayer that Jesus prayed to his father was the one that was answered with a no. Jesus made the presence of God most available to everybody else. 
when he felt the presence of God least himself. And I want to pause here for a moment. Because this is a real important lesson for us. We have no idea when the moment is when God will use us the most. We don't know. And you may be going through something right now where you feel like, I have failed. I've disappointed people. My dreams have died. I've lost my job. I feel broken. I feel weak. And it might be the point in your life where God is going to pour more grace through you into the world than you could have possibly imagined. Because the kingdom is available through Jesus in such surprising ways. About 100 years ago, there was a guy named Bill Wilson who had these huge dreams about how he was going to impact the world. And his dreams were shattered because he couldn't stop drinking. He was addicted to alcohol. And when he hit rock bottom, when he was most ashamed, when he felt most weak, and when he found God, that became the moment when something called Alcoholics Anonymous was born. God would use Bill Wilson in his brokenness like he had never used him in his strength. And what's true of Jesus is true of so many other people. We just don't know when God will use us. So don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Because now the temple is wherever Jesus is. Now, you don't have to go to some special place to be close to God. Not the temple. Not the church. Jesus is everywhere. And not just that. There's another step. One of Jesus' followers put it like this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, that is God's people, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. This is such a powerful idea. And Paul also says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? In other words, we have become the place on earth where God wants to make himself present to others. Broken, ordinary, Messed up people like you and me have become the place where God wants up there to come down here. So you see, how close I feel to God turns out not to be the best barometer of how close God is to me or how much God wants to use me to bless and touch others. Sometimes we have a tendency to worship this feeling. You know, we say, I just want to feel close. Well, way more important than feeling the presence of God is being the presence of God to others. And this is such good news. The Bible never commands, feel God's presence. I know some of you feel discouraged or not spiritual sometimes. And you look at other people who go to church all the time and they describe feeling close to God. The Bible never says, have holy feelings. It does command that we pray Jesus' prayer, that we carry our own cross, that we surrender to our own will, that we die to our own death. 
I'm called to die to my ego. To my desire to live life independent of God and make myself my own God. And man, does that thing rear its ugly head more than I'd like it to. My ego is to my spiritual life what cockroaches are to a nuclear fallout. Exceedingly difficult to kill. And it comes up at the most inopportune times. The other day I spoke at chapel at Friends University. It was the first time I had a chance to speak in front of that group on a platform like that. And as you know, I've given dozens of messages here, but this chapel talk was different. Now, I wanted to deliver a message that would be thought-provoking and heart-touching. But if I'm being honest, my bigger goal was to impress people because my ego got in the way. This is the big question on following Jesus. Will I die to my own ego, my own need for self-promotion, my insistence on getting my own way, my desire to make myself the God of my life? And will you die to yours so that you can learn to be with Jesus where you are? As I was preparing this message, I was thinking about how often Jesus would come to the temple. And he would see what his father intended it to be. And how that would make his heart pound. And he knew what he was being called to do. And I was thinking, in that temple, when Jesus was just a 12-year-old boy, he saw for the first time an innocent, spotless lamb giving up its life, having its blood poured out, being offered somehow as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of its people. And I wonder what Jesus thought when he saw that when he was 12 years old. I wonder what went through his mind when he began his ministry. And the beginning of something like that is such a wonderful and exciting thing. And his cousin, John the Baptist, looked at him. And what John said was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wonder when Jesus was on the cross, if he thought back to when he was 12, and he thought about the love of his father. Because what that meant was, no more sacrifice. Nobody else has to pay the price. Nobody has to live anymore under the weight of their guilt or their shame or their regret or despair or fear of death. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. The price was paid. Up there came down here. Now you're the temple. If you just say yes to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you rode into Jerusalem, not as a violent conquering king, but as a humble servant king, ready to take away the sins of the world. We ask that you forgive us those times when we think too highly of ourselves and remind us always that you call us to live lives dedicated to your service, to you and to our neighbors, wherever and whoever they might be. Help us to be the presence of God to others. Help us to also take off our cloaks of self-righteousness and lay them down at your feet. As we journey into Holy Week, my prayer is that we remember 
what you were writing toward. Suffering and rejection. Pain and humiliation. And death on the cruel cross. By your grace, you erased the old temple and created a new temple. And now that temple is within us. The happiest place on earth. Thank you for your love and your mercy. I thank you for this community gathered here today and what you have done and are doing through us. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. It's in your powerful, holy, and beautiful name I pray. Amen. Well, we're at the time in our morning where we're going to collect the, uh, the offering. So I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward to prepare for that. And as a reminder, I'd really love it if you would put your Connect card in the basket as it goes by so that we can be in prayer for you, we can celebrate with you, we can connect with you. Let us pray. Oh God, I just uh, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our lives. And as we give back to you, I just pray that you multiply it like fish and loaves to feed the masses to bless other people, bless our lives. You are such a good God. We thank you for all that you are doing. And we just pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.